Hello, and welcome to PDA, Neurodivergence, and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. If you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, let's launch into this episode's topic. In a previous episode, I talked about adult ADHD and how to identify the presentations. And it made me think about doing it for ASD and PDA as well. In other words, what do these things look like in real life? What is obsessive behavior, stimming, um, PICA, um, these types of things, right? You can hear a list of signs and symptoms and, you know, things to, to look for, but what do those actually, how does that look in real life, right? And this is honestly a bit complicated because it can vary widely from person to person, right? Um, autism is a spectrum, and so you're not going to get the same things from different people. But I wanted to provide some examples, That way, hopefully, it can provide you with some talking points at appointments. Being able to identify behaviors and label them can be far more efficient when seeking a diagnosis. Those of us who have gone through the process of knowing there was something there, something different, something causing a struggle for our child or ourself, understand the difficulty of trying to verbalize that. You tell the doctor that there's something that needs to be addressed, but often they don't comprehend what you're trying to say. Or worse, you request an assessment and they tell you they won't give it because you or your child do not show the classic signs, right? I was told to my face my son did not look autistic, And I'm like, what does that even mean? Um, And of course, we all know he is, in fact, autistic and he is a PDAer. Um, And so I I was told by this was a counselor, but still I was told he he doesn't I don't see autism in him. (laughs) Okay. Um, now the obvious signs of ASD, which this person was referring to, um, are things like being nonverbal, um, having an extreme aversion to touch, are usually the ones that stick out, um, not making eye contact, right? These are the big ones. But for those who have the more nuanced experience of autism, there can be other signs to watch for. The information that I found more so relates to children, but I think also undiagnosed adults may be able to look back and see some of these things evidenced in their childhood and maybe even see how they've adapted these things into their adult lives. 
So let's dive in. Um, I should probably caveat this by saying that the what I'm about to talk about is most likely not an exhaustive list. Again, I am not a medical professional. I just know what research I have done, what things that I have read that have been written by professionals say. Um, though, again, when we're dealing with something that is a spectrum um, s- disorder, I don't really like that word, but of course, it's that's what ASD stands for, right? Autism Spectrum Disorder. Um, but when you're dealing with something that does operate on a spectrum, you're we don't fully understand that spectrum at all. Um, I think we're getting a better understanding of it, but we don't have it. It's not something that can be nailed down conclusively because of the nature of a spectrum. Um, so I'm, what I'm going to give you is what I found. Um, but obviously I know it's not an exhaustive list. One of the things, though, that tends to come up repeatedly whenever I've read into this, different books, articles, etc., is that sort of disconnection to others, right? Um, and not necessarily, this disconnection kind of manifests in different ways, right? So this can look like um, a child that doesn't seem to understand a difference in facial expressions, right? Um, Which kind of goes along with that umbrella topic of not understanding the social or nonverbal cues that are commonly associated with ASD, right? This this is a common problem, um, understanding those those, um, social norms, right? So an autistic child may not comprehend that there has been a change in someone's mood based on the presence of a scowl on their face now instead of a smile. So they may continue to um, behave in the same way they've been behaving, right? Um, Thinking the person is still in that jovial mood they had been in. They may not detect that shift in mood because of a change in that facial expression. And I feel like this is one of the reasons why autistic people have been labeled as lacking in empathy for so long um, because they have that disconnect. They don't realize that they don't pick up on those, those, you know, facial expressions, those cues that come from things like that. Um, I mean, some people do, some people don't. Right. Um, And so this, I feel like, is part of that reason that people are like, oh, well, they just, they lack in empathy. It's not that they have a lack of empathy, because I've seen empathy in spades among autistic people. Um, they have a very deep capacity for feeling and emotion. Um, it just boils down to the fact that often autistic children assume that, or autistic people in general, they assume that others process events the same way they do right and for children both neurodivergent and neurotypical they aren't always privy to the idea of you know someone may have a different experience than you this person may not see things or process things or react to things the same way you do Um, and so for autistic children that's an even bigger obstacle because they assume that, you know, certain things are happening the same way in others' minds that they happen in theirs. And so that can kind of add another layer of difficulty for them, right? 
and they also may not perceive that certain things that they say could cause offense, right? Being blunt, being transparently honest, right? Saying things or calling things out or asking questions about something that well, we normally wouldn't say because, oh, that might make that person feel bad. Um, but in their mind, it's that seems different. Why is that happening, right? Why is this person behaving this way? Why does this person have, you know, maybe someone, for instance, who's had a stroke and may have, you know, some droop to one side of their face asking that, you know, why does your face look like that? For them, it's this is different from what I see. Why is this happening? And so that can cause people to feel like there is that disconnect when in fact it's it's more just a, a difference in processing, a difference in reaction, right? And honestly, like, yes, a lot of kids will interrupt a conversation. You know, kids are famous for interrupting. I know adults that are famous for interrupting as well, but that's neither here nor there. Um, for some, you know, like kids, particularly kids with like ADHD and, and even autism as well, um, or PDA for that matter, they may interrupt a conversation because they have thought of something that is extremely important and they want to say it before they forget it. Um, and that's that's fairly common, again, for neurodivergent and neurotypical children. But if it's something, if these things persist, right, into older ages, because obviously some of this stuff is pretty common for, you know, very young children. They may say and do things that are out of the norm because they haven't learned those different societal expectations and cues and things like that. But if it's something that persists past the point of what seems like other children would realize, okay, this isn't something that you say at this point, um, or do or whatever, then it may be something to make note of, right? If your child continues to, um, engage in behaviors that seem to suggest a disconnect, right? Understanding emotion is, it's difficult for all of us, but it can be an understanding and processing emotion um, can be something that neurodivergent people struggle with, right? Um, and it's not just an outward issue either. A variety of neurodivergent children, um, not just autistic children, but, um, you know, like other neurodivergent conditions, a variety of, of people with neurodivergence have trouble processing and regulating emotion, right? That's one of the big cues. Um, and that's one of the reasons too, that we had trouble going beyond just a diagnosis of ADHD and actually getting an autism diagnosis for Declan is he had tr difficulty regulating emotion. Um, now in terms of, um, how this looks, this can be rapid changes in mood right? Extremes of mood. Uh, I remember noting for years how Declan didn't really, you know, most people have a progress, a process rather, when it comes to emotion, you, you know, somebody starts doing something and it starts to get on your nerves and you're like, okay, you know, getting a little impatient with it. Then you get irritated. And then if it continues, finally you get frustrated, you get angry and you, you know, like then you react, right? That's sort of that, that normal shift. Well, I say normal. I, that's probably not the best word to use. But just that, that 
expected, I guess would be a better way to explain it, that expected process going from one to the next in, in a more elevated way. For him, it was one extreme to the next. It wasn't like climbing a hill. It was like hitting the cliff face, right? He went from one to the other, and it was drastic, okay? He would simply go straight to anger or rage. And at first, kind of, the doctors were concerned. They labeled this as, like, mania, and they assessed him for bipolar disorder but the thing is his swings his shifts his massive changes in mood they were too short-lived with bipolar the mania tends to last for longer right and so for him it was more they just said oh, it was the emotional outbursts that are common to adhd um and these outbursts can look like uh, tantrums, right? Um, what are commonly called tantrums or, you know, screaming, crying. Um, they can also be physically aggressive. So the kids may start um, lashing out and hitting other people or themselves because this physical aggression can be outward or it can be inward. So this can be them hitting, biting, throwing things, um, and this is hitting and biting other people, throwing things at other people. It can also look like hitting themselves, biting themselves, banging their head against a wall. Um, it may seem like they cannot control their emotions and their physical responses, especially when they find themselves in new, strange, or stressful situations. Um, and this sort of feeds into that trouble with... Um, uh, you know, the new and stressful situations or places, that is, that feeds into the trouble with transitions and the rigidity that's considered a typical sign of autism. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, but noting when your child is having um, a meltdown like this, noting what, when this happens, right, what it is in response to that can be very helpful when you're talking to a medical professional saying that you know he'll have these massive swings in emotions i used to tell them he would have these massive shifts and swings in mood and and whatnot um and they would be you know they would ask and so i got to the point where i would note okay well he will get really angry in response to this or you know in these situations you know in transition periods that became much more um, helpful when trying to talk to people about it. Uh, another sign that you can look for is sort of a lack of social interaction, right? Autistic children can sometimes be labeled as loners because there can be this apparent indifference to playing with other children. Um, they may also show an interest in things that are not toys that they play with. An example here uh, that I can give you from my experience is that I crochet and Declan loves to pick up the stray ends of yarn that I cut off my projects after I weave in the ends, which is, ugh. but anyway, after I do this, I'll cut off, you know, little pieces that are left and he loves to pick them up and play with them. He will pull all the different strands apart and he'll play with those. He has a, you know, 
a room full of toys, but he'll often play with these yarn ends or paper note cards, three by five note cards. He loves to play with those. Um, Stray socks. He likes to play with those too. Uh, Just like a variety of things that aren't toys. And for a long time, he was sort of kind of noted by his teachers that he was a loner, that he would go off and and play by himself instead of playing with other children. Um, You may also notice that your child not only avoids playing with other children, but it may be that they prefer the company of older children or maybe even adults. Um, And this is kind of one of the the signposts of PDA as well, right? PDAers often have trouble distinguishing in that line between children and adults, right? That um, realm of behavior and things like that. They can sort of seem to see themselves as an authority figure because of their need for control to stave off their anxiety, So another common feature between, um, you know, like PDA and ASD in general is, is that demand avoidance, right? They both have, and that was the thing when I was seeking an assessment for PDA and I mentioned how he has this demand avoidance, um, extreme demand avoidance. The psychologist said, well, demand avoidance is also a, a, a sign of ASD, right? It's, it's a sign of autism as well. They have a demand avoidance as well. Um, the difference, though, is that for PDA, that resistance, that avoidance is usually to, like, everyday demands. It's not necessarily a rigidity of um, schedule or routine. It's, it's avoiding everyday things like brushing your teeth, getting dressed, eating even, you know, things like that. Um, For ASD, it isn't always in response to ordinary demands. Um, It's usually more often in response to, like like I said, changes in routine, transitions, new environments, Um, particularly new environments that are assaults on the senses, right? Sensitivity to sensory stimuli is another sign of autism. You know, autistic people can become overwhelmed um, and agitated, to the point of having a meltdown, which honestly is more accurately described as an extreme panic attack, right? Because it's not, it's not that this person is, is, you know, having some sort of mental breakdown. It is an extreme panic attack is what it is. Um, and this is in response to an overload of their senses, right? Um, autistic people can be quite sensitive to sounds, lights, smells, um, textures, large crowds, anything that has to do with the senses, right? They can be very sensitive to sensory stimuli um, because it's, it can be a lot for the brain to process and it can create this sense of panic in them, initiating that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn reaction. Sensory issues can manifest in a variety of ways. So you might notice that your child has a uh, sensitivity to clothing texture, right? That is a big one. Um, They'll avoid certain textures of clothing. I don't want to wear that. It doesn't feel right. It feels scratchy on my skin. Um, Tags can be a massive problem. Praise all things 
<laughs> that you now have so many tagless, uh, you know, like they just print it on the shirt, right? Tagless clothing has been an absolute <laughs> blessing um, because tags just Declan cannot do tags. He can't. Cam can't do tags either. Uh, Cam has sensory issues as well. Um, the texture and smell of foods can be a problem too. So you might notice that your child may have a very limited diet, right? Um, and only eats foods that have specific textures and avoids other things. Like there may be, it might be that a certain type of food, like Declan will eat raw carrots. He will not eat cooked carrots to save his life. So you can even have the same food, but it's the texture of the food that can make all the difference, right? There's, there's a variety of ways that can manifest in diet, and that can be problematic when you're trying to navigate and figure out things that they will and won't eat. Um, the brightness or darkness of a room, uh, the brightness or darkness of the colors in the room can be unsettling, right? Um, or, you know, you may have places that are just too loud, right? It's, there's too much noise, too many people. Um, Declan loves to watch movies, but we could not take him to the theater until very recently. Um, and even now, like he has his ear protectors because of the noise that way, in case it gets too loud, because he can't do excessive noise, um, especially like unexpected bursts of noise that will unsettle him to no end. Um, one of the things I have noticed though, is that, um, the theater here at least now offers, sensory packs for neurodivergent kiddos which is awesome um it's like this little pack and it inside it it has ear protectors and fidget toys and like a weighted lap pad um which kind of brings in that other side of sensory issues right there's sensory avoidance which is all of this that i've just talked about here but then there's also sensory seeking right um Sensory seeking is, has a, a wide range of presentations, too. And they're sometimes lumped in with uh, stimming or self-stimulation. Uh, again, something I'll talk about in a minute, um, which is, you know, repetitive behaviors presented by autistic people. Um, so you may notice things like for sensory seeking. You might see um, that you, a child loves to spin in circles a lot, um, or they like to feel pressure against them. Um, sensory swings are really cool for both of those because they can provide both the sense of spinning because they can spin, um, they can swing back and forth, and then they usually also kind of are like a cocoon, and so they'll, put, they'll give that pressure as well. Um, for those who just seek that, like, pressure, body socks are a really cool thing um, that you can get. It's just this, you know, really kind of, it's just a big rectangle with an opening for your head, and you get inside there, and it kind of provides some of that pressure. Um, weighted stuffed animals are another thing that you can get in weighted lap pads or weighted blankets, Right, they have these that can sometimes that pressure is is helpful for the anxiety. Um, sometimes the sensory seeking can manifest in a need to chew on things. You know, it's very common for young toddlers and babies to put just about anything in their mouths, but kids who continue to do so into later years could be exhibiting a sign of autism. 
And sometimes this gets referred to as pika, but most often pika is associated with like eating things that aren't food, Um, rocks, dirt, clay, things like that. Um, But autistic children can also just chew on a variety of things like fingers, um, different types of plastics, toys, and sometimes unsafe objects. A good solution there are these uh, chew necklaces for sensory seeking individuals you can buy all over the internet variety of places have them. We have a lot of different uh, ones, different textures and shapes uh, to help with this issue. I've gotten to where now I'll just kind of hand it to Declan when I see him chewing like on his fingers or if he has some toy or something in his mouth, I'll just go and grab one of his necklaces and, and hand it to him. I don't mention it. I don't call attention to it. And of course, that avoids presenting any sort of demand. I'll just be like, hey, here you go. Um, and I'll just kind of hand it to him. And he'll usually just sort of take it from me absentmindedly and, and put it in his mouth. Or I'll just walk up, since it's a necklace, and loop it around his neck. And he'll pick it up and put it in his mouth. Um, and it just replaces whatever he had in his mouth before, which is really helpful um, to kind of get whatever that was out of his mouth because sometimes it's his finger and so it's not like he's going to bite that off and swallow it um but sometimes it's a toy and i'd rather him not choke on it you know stimming is often kind of referred to as an, a repetitive behavior so sometimes you'll at, hear um, people ask if your child exhibits uh, repetitive behaviors um most often asked about is hand flapping, right? That is something that is kind of, if I remember correctly in the the assessment that we had to fill out as parents, um, you know, it was like, does the child exhibit repetitive behavior, for example, hand flapping? Um, that's usually the one that's listed. Stimming is kind of a shortened version of self-stimulation, And there can be a variety of reasons for it. Um, It may be due to being overwhelmed, um, excited, anxious, happy. Um, It just, sometimes it's just used as a coping mechanism, a way to bring comfort, right? It's it's repetitive behavior. You know what's going to happen. You understand what's happened. So in an environment where that may feel out of your control, this is something small that you have control over and it's happening in an order that you are in control of. So it helps to kind of calm a lot of that, um, anxiety and overwhelm, um, but it can also happen because somebody's really happy and they're, you know, they're trying to get out that emotion. You know, we've all felt those experiences of just like really excessive happiness and you just feel like you could burst. You're so happy you could burst. And so for people with autism, like for autistic people, this is a way to help sort of channel some of that, right? And some people sort of engage in this behavior when they're in these stressful situations, though, to help themselves gain some sort of comfort in these new surroundings. Um, It's, you know, it can be a coping mechanism as much as it can be a way to get out excessive happiness. And so in many circumstances, um, an autistic person may not be able to control their stimming. You know, it's something that they're doing um, and they just, so it's not something you should sort of like 
call attention to or cause any sort of shame about. Um, but what does it look like when someone stems? Well, hand flapping is, of course, the one that's always listed. But there are other ways. And it's, it's hard to really pinpoint this one because there's, there is so much variety, right? It's, it can be spinning in circles, biting nails, um, squeezing your hands or your fingers together, tapping your fingers, tapping your feet, um, twirling hair around the fingers, um, wiggling feet, rubbing your arms, squeezing your, um, squeezing your arms, cracking your joints, repeating certain words or phrases, um, doing certain things in a certain order, tapping a pen. Like you get the idea. It just like, it runs the spectrum, pun intended. The important thing to notice is that it's repetitive, right? If you notice a behavior like this occasionally, it might not be a sign of anything. Lots of people stem, um, like, occasionally. You know, you get stressed out and you start tapping your foot. Um, you know, you're about to take a test and you may be, like, clicking a pen. Um, those types of things. Some people have a sporadic presentation of, of self-stimulation for autistic people. It's repetitive. It's something that happens consistently. And so if your child, if you or your child engage in something like this repetitively, repetitively rather, or more specifically, it happens in response to uncomfortable emotional stimuli or new places. And it's a way to cope with that then it might be something to make note of, right, and discuss. It, then you have an example of something that you see happening repetitively in response to this, and it's, it becomes a talking point, right? It can be easier to sort of explain this is what's happening, right? Something else that can be repetitive, though in a different way, <laughs> is uh, obsessive interests, right? Neurodivergent people of different types, tend to have obsessive interests, sometimes referred to as hyperfixations, right? They may exhibit an intense interest in a specific topic and seek to learn all they can about it. Reading books or, um, you know, going to websites, reading articles, watching uh, TV programs or documentaries about it, trying to learn all they can about that topic. Um, in our house, for Declan, it has been animals of different types, mostly sharks. He's always loved sharks, but we have watched a lot of animal documentaries, YouTube, um, you know, videos about different types of animals, um, cartoons that that deal with learning about animals, things like octonauts, wildcrats, um, those types of things. Just a way to learn about animals. It's always been animals with him. For Cam, his hyperfixations shift at times, um, but generally center around TV shows. We've gone from um, having long, drawn-out discussions about Sonic the Hedgehog to um, Attack on Titan was one that was, um, you know, pretty steady there for a while. Um, but just a variety of things, right? We have... It generally centers around TV shows that the child is interested in at that point in time. So cams shifts a little bit more, but, um, you know, for Declan, it's usually animals. <laughs> um, you may also notice, like, 
obsessive behaviors as well, right? Um, and that's where a lot of the rigidity of routine comes in, right? So the need to do things in the same order every day um, or to only get certain foods from certain places um, or the need to take the same um, path or route to get to places, right? Um, there have been times whenever we go to the store and Declan will ask me, what store are we going to? And I'll tell him. And he's like, why are we going this way and not the other way? Um, it just, all of it comes back to anxiety, right? Um, when you're dealing with this, this need for continuity, right? Continuity is comforting. If you do the same thing the same way, you should get the same outcome, right? And it cuts down on the possibility of uncertainty, or something going wrong, right? Uncertainty, the unexpected, that breeds anxiety. And that, well, I know if I do this this way, this is what happens, but you're wanting me to do it this way, so what if something goes wrong? And that's where you can have that demand avoidance come in, whether you're talking about demand avoidance for um, someone who's autistic or someone who's a pda -er, right? That unknown brings the anxiety that brings the demand avoidance, right? Um, whereas repetition provides sameness and that sameness is a comfort because it avoids that anxiety. Finally, um, one of the more well-known signs of autism is the difficulty in distinguishing between literal and figurative language, right? Um, the problems detecting sarcasm. That was a real problem for us. Um, we, there are a lot of sarcastic people in my house. And so Declan really struggled. Um, and like this stems from that issue of trouble with social cues, right? Um, it can be difficult for any young child um, to detect sarcasm, right? Um, Many of the many young children take things literally, right? Before they learn to interpret those social cues, those tones, um, facial expressions, things like that. Um, so for young children, it, it's not always a sign of autism. The the really young ones, but if it's if this difficulty in understanding jokes. Um, figurative language, sarcasm, if those types of things persist into later ages, that's when you may want to sort of make note of it and bring it up with the doctor. Um, and this is sometimes asked about in the assessments, too, um, whenever they ask about, uh, because, like, pretend and, and make-believe play, those types of things come in with this as well, right? Because imagination, pretend, play, make-believe, that falls into that realm of figurative and not literal, right? Um, but the idea that autistic children don't have the capacity for imagination is a bit problematic, right? Because many autistic children have rather vivid imaginations. And in the case of kids with PDA, um, PDAers can actually prefer to live inside their fantasy instead of reality. So this one gets really tricky. Um, if you notice that your child obviously does not engage in any sort of imaginative play, right? 
then you may want to ask about it. Um, on the flip side, if you have a child that cannot possibly clean their room because they are a frog and frogs don't have hands, you could be dealing with more along the lines of a PDA profile of autism. Um, so it's, you can't really nail down that, oh, a lack of imagination um, is a sign of, of autism because you can also have excessive amounts of imagination associated with profiles of autism as well. So that, that idea that dif the difficulty in distinguishing between literal and figurative bleeding directly into a lack of imagination is kind of a big leap that gets made often that I don't necessarily agree with. And it kind of seems like some of the you know, the literature out there is starting to move away from that as well. Um, I don't know. I feel like maybe I've just muddied the waters more. But I hope that this has provided a little insight into what some of these behavior categories can look like. Um, the important thing to remember is that autism is a spectrum. And that means that all experiences are different. Your child may exhibit some or all of these, or they may have completely different presentations. Um, and noting things that fit with some of these signs, whether it be obsessive behaviors, repetitive behaviors, um, you know, whatever, that can be something useful to bring to the professionals when meeting with them. Because saying you know something's going on with your child is one thing. But giving them a list of symptoms with examples of how those symptoms are presenting in your child could just make all the difference. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on social media. Just search PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate on Facebook or Instagram. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.